So I was reading a study read about the nerdiest states in America. Oh, boy. What are those factors that contribute to nerdiness? Some of the things they were looking for are people that own collector's items like blankets, kitchenware, figurines, holiday decorations or furniture that are like for Marvel and Star Wars and all those other things. They also look at the amount of people that are searching for these collector's type items online. And that's really how they categorized the nerdiest state. Six states had the same top item they were looking for online. Pokemon card blankets. I didn't know these things existed. Top five most nerdiest states are Kansas, Utah, Nevada, New Mexico, and rounding out as the most nerdiest state in the country, Nebraska. So not where all the nerds work. Must be where they probably record Antique Roadshow. Welcome to Touchpoint, a podcast dedicated to discussions on digital marketing and patient engagement strategies for hospitals, health systems, and physician practices. In this podcast, we'll dive deep into digital tools, solutions, and strategies that are impacting our industry today. We hope to share a lot of great information with you and have fun along the way. Thanks for joining us. Now, here are your hosts. Welcome back. Welcome to episode number 294 of Touchpoint. I am Reed Smith, joined by Chris Boyer. Hey there, Reed. I'm over here playing with my Lego Star Wars collection because I'm one of those nerdiest people in the countries. We do have a member of our marketing communications staff here that is a master Lego builder. Like goes to conferences around the country with a gigantic display. Wow. Can't figure out how to work that into the new office design (laughs) or something like that. But nonetheless, we're all nerds here. So that's right. Again, thank you for joining. Thanks for tuning in. Appreciate the uh, support. Quick plug for the website, touchpoint.health. And uh, like every week, would love it if you would make your way over there. Again, touchpoint.health and sign up for the TPS report. You'll notice up in the top navigation of the website, you can certainly explore around, but if you'll click on that little button up there, it'll ask you for your name and your email address, and that gets you an email once a week in your inbox, Monday mornings, with just a few articles to kick things off. So hopefully you find those valuable. Love it if you'd sign up. We get new ones every week. That's great to see, and a lot of fun to be able to send that out. We'll take a quick pause here and then be back with today's show. Chris, in today's digital age, your online reputation, as we all know, is crucial. With customers relying on online reviews, your first impression is also compared directly with your competitors. Sure is. And Reed, consider this. 86% of patients today read online reviews and 73% demand that that healthcare provider has a minimum four-star rating. Demand. They demand it. Yeah, they do. Well, to stand out, choose Reputation to help amplify your brand and to build trust. Be the provider of choice in your area, understand patient sentiment, get actionable insights, and even foster patient loyalty. And look, here's the easy way you could do that. All you need to do is go visit reputation.com slash touchpoint. That's reputation.com slash touchpoint, where you can download their healthcare online reputation management guide and build a reputation that performs for you.
being a podcast host, I listen to a fair amount of podcasts. And I think we've even recommended, maybe I recommended on the show, uh, the Smartless podcast. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Which, uh, again, side note, hilarious podcast co-hosted by uh, Sean Hayes, Will Arnett, and Jason Bateman, who cracks me up. Anyway, and they have a guest on every week, and it's it's a lot of fun to listen to. Well, recently I was listening to one from uh, sometime back, actually, uh, where they had Vivek Murthy on, the Surgeon General. And they talked about a number of things, you know, how he got into the role, you know, et cetera, et cetera. But then started talking about, you know, health misinformation, and he referenced an advisory, I guess they actually call it. Uh, on health misinformation. And so, well, again, we'll have a, a link to this in the show notes, but this is actually from 2021. It's uh, Confronting Health Information, the U.S. Surgeon General's Advisory on Building a Healthy Information Environment. That kind of piqued my interest. I know we've touched on this a time or two, but thought it might be good to kind of dive back into the idea of misinformation on the interwebs and kind of what that means for all of us and the role we maybe play in it. Yeah, absolutely. In fact, dedicating a whole show to it. We, you're right. We have kind of touched on it in the, you know, when we were talking about different technology platforms and the challenges of keeping content moderated and what, kind of the ways that we as healthcare professionals are intersecting with health misinformation. But today, I'm excited that we're going to do kind of a deep dive because, quite frankly, health misinformation is something that's been a problem for a long time. In the United States, uh, I would say in the in the history of mankind, and it's not going away. The pandemic, of course, is not abating as much as we'd like it for for two. The COVID pandemic. There's also now monkeypox and sort of the challenges around that, and with that comes a slate of health misinformation as well. For us working in the industry, this is a really important topic for us to kind of dive into. Yeah, and I think what was really interesting that something he said in the podcast that I was listening to was the fact that you know misinformation is not new, really on health information or not, but misinformation is not a new thing. People have told lies or over-exaggerated or told half-truths or kind of however you want to frame all that, either purposefully or not, over the years around a number of topics. Mm-hmm. But what social media has done is given it an accelerant in its ability to scale and spread quicker than we historically are used to. Yeah. And so when you're looking at health misinformation, uh, specifically, he says, uh, is a serious threat to public health. That's what's kind of crazy about this is that the confusion it causes. Everybody's been on Facebook recently, uh, probably. Mm-hmm. And whether it's health misinformation or not, you can see the divisiveness of just arguing and people are always right and you know this kind of thing. And it's not good for where we are. It's not good for where we are. And actually, in his advisory, he kind of outlines some of those factors. We'll we'll dive into them. Again, look in the show notes. But the thing is, is that we can all benefit from taking steps to improve health information that we consume. And it really impacts everybody that's peripherally involved with this in our 
in our industry. Healthcare professionals, us as digital marketers or digital people within organizations, people that help serve those organizations, like through your, you know, the, the third party companies that we work with, and individuals in society too. So there's this advisory is really robust. We're going to hit some of the high level p- points here, Reed. Ultimately, there were some key takeaways that I thought would be good for us to kind of use to guide our conversation. The very first thing is defining misinformation. They call out in this advisory that misinformation is information that is patently false, inaccurate, or misleading according to the best available evidence at the time. Now, what's interesting is you read through this advisory, he says that a lot of times people are involved in passing on health misinformation, but they're not really willingly trying to pass that on. They actually think it it has some reality to it, but unfortunately, it is false, right? So we have to categorize that as misinformation. And I would say that's probably, I don't know what the percentages are, if there's even a way to know that, but I would say most people are, are not purposefully I mean, trying to spread false information, right? The whole point of this is they assume, and back to that idea of confusion and you know that kind of thing, they assume that what they're spreading is is helpful information or or good or you know would help people make decisions and it does help people make decisions it's just not the right ones all the time it's not based in medical science right and that's that's the challenge here and i've had conversations with family members and also friends about this it's not that we're saying that having a healthy discourse about multiple different ways to approach healthcare challenges, and particularly around COVID, right? There's been a lot of conversation around the best ways to do that because the science was evolving over the time. Mm -hmm. But just think of COVID itself, Reed. During the pandemic, this advisory outlines that health misinformation has led people to decline vaccines, Mm -hmm. you know, despite scientific evidence that shows that vaccines help, reject public health measures like masking, and even use unproven treatments. And it's gone even further than that. It's not only for yourself, it's health misinformation has led to harassment, violence against healthcare workers, airline staff, and other people in the community. This is why they issued this advisory, because it's become such an issue. It is. I mean, it's hard to go through your daily life and it not be a problem or, or, or come up, right? So they jump in here and we've talked a little bit about this, talking about how it actually spreads. There are no shortage of places to go for information. Those places are typically uh, fueled via technology or the internet. Like I mentioned earlier, and like, like he mentioned on the podcast I was listening to, it, it's the speed and scale. You know, it's not the misinformation itself. That's always existed, but it spreads more easily than it ever has before. And it's doing it via these social media sites predominantly, right? I mean, there's other things where this, other places it happens, certainly, uh, even search engines and stuff indexing some things. But it's predominantly, as we see it in our lives, at least for me, is, is on social media. Yeah, and there's really three reasons they outline as predominantly why this is happening. The first of which is that misinformation is often framed in sort of sensational or emotional ways that really connects viscerally with people, right? It, it distorts how they view things. It really is aligned with cognitive bias and is designed to heighten psychological responses such as anxiety. And particularly when we were faced with like the COVID pandemic, our anxiety levels were high and 
it was sort of like we didn't know who had COVID or who didn't. There was a lot of unclarity around that. And this misinformation pandemic came through and really hit on those those trigger points in our society that caused us to have this sort of reaction to it. Secondly on the list is, is the platform itself and the features therein, right? So all these platforms that are contributing to the spread of this information, and, and we know this, we've talked about this, the incentive is to comment, share, like, you know, those types of things, right? So this just, it's like, pouring gas on the fire. It just amplifies the spread based on natively how these platforms are built to function. And that really leads to that third major piece here is that the algorithms that are driving these social channels and platforms, and I would even say to a certain extent, SEO on search engines, they determine what users see online and they often prioritize content that's based on popularity or similarity to other content that you've seen before. And so the end result is that we've created this, I guess, a boiling pot of misinformation that you could see over and over again, further reinforcing that misunderstanding. It's the, what, how do they call it, right? The perfect storm of misinformation out there. And the, the, the last three years have kind of underscored and highlighted that. Yeah, they go on to talk about the fact, and again, we these are all things that we've touched on, not necessarily around misinformation, but just the way the world works now. Because there are so many places people can go, you know, there are so many different platforms and outlets and media sources, et cetera, et cetera. There's whack-a-mole, right? There's no way to chase all this stuff down and delete it slash correct it. I mean, we've talked about this before of like, well, how do you get this off the first page of Google? And, you know, we used to talk about that, you know, the solution to pollution is dilution, you know, kind of thing. Well, it's just, it's hard. You can't get there. Like this is just a amount, you know, you're, you're fighting against so much that there's no way to catch up here. You're finding contradictory search results. You're finding information that differs wildly depending on where you go. And so at the very least, you're, you're just confused and not sure what to do. Or worse, you know, you end up uh, believing something that is, is incorrect. Or you're polarized by others. And that's really the, uh, the last piece of the puzzle here is that unfortunately, healthcare and health information has kind of crossed over to the political sphere. And that polarization in our political landscape has allowed us to actually make political identities and personal identities around misinformation. I think we've gotten to a place where um, people have decided they have to be right. It doesn't really matter what we're talking about, right? It could be politics. It could be health information or vaccines or whatever the topic is, but it's just there is no room for, for grace or hearing people out or looking at another point of view or, or whatever, right? We've just gotten to this place. I think social media has driven us to a place of just having to be right all the time. And that's why your friends that were vaccine experts were then foreign policy experts. And it's like a bigger issue, right? It's just health misinformation is kind of where we are today. And it's not an American issue either, right? It's a worldwide issue, right? And it's, I think what you're talking about is it's hitting on those things, those triggers of us as humans. 
Yeah. Like we have now this environment, like we called it, right? The perfect storm to make this happen. Well, let's not leave this on a, on a low note. Let's talk about ways that this advisory actually outlines ways we can address health misinformation. So first and foremost is equipping folks with the tools to uh, really be able to identify misinformation when, when they see it and, and be able to make informed choices about the information that they share. And so they're talking here about, um, you know, addressing health misinformation in their communities in partnership with trusted local leaders. In addition, uh, this advisory calls on the expansion of research to deepen our understanding of health misinformation, specifically how it spreads and evolves. You know, look at those aspects of, of why misinformation can spread this way so quickly and, and do some analysis to understand how we could effectively address it sort of in a counter perspective. Uh, one that a lot of folks have talked about and, and it's called out in here is uh, the implementation of, of new designs and policy changes on these platforms to kind of programmatically or technically slow the spread of misinformation. So that could be identification and, and the spread, I guess. Also investing in longer term if, uh, efforts to build resilience against misinformation, because knowing that this is going to continue to happen, they call out here media science, digital data, and health literacy programs that are designed for training health practitioners, journalists, librarians, and others in our society, again, to kind of arm us against this threat of health misinformation. Convene research partners uh, to explore the impact of health information. So this is federal, state, local uh, tribal, private, not-for-profit, et cetera, but really to come and find common ground on difficult questions and, and you know, including, they say, appropriate legal and regulatory measures. So it's a complex solution to the problem. After the break, Reed, why don't we come back and we, we uh, talk about how people on the front line are confronting medical misinformation, but we'll do that right after this break. Coming soon from Greystone, Bowstring, and Touchpoint Media, Live from HCIC, a new podcast that brings you front row access to the latest innovative strategies that are shaping tomorrow's healthcare industry. In this 12-part series, as recorded live at the Healthcare Internet Conference, we'll hear from industry experts such as Paul Madsen of the Cleveland Clinic, Kathy Smith of Roper St. Francis Healthcare, David Feinberg from Mount Sinai Health System, Rose Glenn from Michigan Medicine, and many others. Subscribe now on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or your favorite podcasting platform. This podcast series is brought to you by Greystone.net, Bowstring, and Touchpoint Media. Okay, so we talked about the threat of medical misinformation, Reed. Let's hear a little bit about how organizations and people are responding and confronting medical misinformation, because it's been happening now for years, as we said. We found a great article on the AAMC website. That's the Association of American Medical Colleges. And it was authored by some people that are associated with a, a group of women researchers and clinicians. They call themselves the Nerdy Girls. I like that. Where they live in Nebraska. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Who provide accurate information about COVID-19 and other health issues. And they've been kind of in the, in the trenches fighting this misinformation for the past 30 months. 30 months. That's, that's hard to believe. 
Well, it says they've engaged with more than 100,000 readers and answered more than 2,000 questions, primarily around COVID and the pandemic as a whole, and uh, have learned a number of things. So first and foremost um, is that the battle can be won. Ooh, that's comforting. Yeah. I was like, wait a minute. Did I read that right? Disinformation zealots are actually in the minority. This is kind of that whole vocal minority thing, which I think is true in a lot of cases, probably even in politics. We, we're just hearing from the noisy people, right? Yeah. It's not taking into account the 80% in the middle that probably have a fair amount in common or willing to, you know, work together, you know, kind of a thing. And part of that is the role of the healthcare professional, because they're seen as that trusted messenger to deliver that information. So many organizations have provided communication resources and built science communication toolkits for frontline providers. I've done this in my health system. We kind of help arm them with the right information. Now, I haven't written that that information, but we kind of created web presences where they could go if they're faced with common questions so that we could provide the right information for consumers in the marketplace. There's some other things that they kind of call out here, Reed. Let's go through some of these. Monitoring relevant misinformation. If you know what's out there, obviously you can try to kind of get ahead of it, right? And where to kind of focus your efforts. If you think about it and you think about things that are in the news now, certainly there's things like climate change they call out or uh, the vaccine movements, COVID-19 certainly having an idea of what's out there and kind of the science behind it um, will allow you to, you know, timely, in a timely nature, think about those topics and how you respond to them and kind of how you participate online to some degree. Another thing is to address those fears and obstacles by listening and empathy, right? Um, as we, we say, judgment-free space. Understanding where the misinformation is coming from can be helpful. And they even call out here that calling out misinformation does not make the problem worse, which we've heard sometimes that they do. But they say the way you do it is the, is the right way. They even suggest asking open-ended questions to get the conversation started around people's fears. Next on the list, be transparent and humble. This is a little bit what I mentioned about everybody needing to be right. Uh, but they say that we're suffering a crisis of public confidence. I like that. Well, I don't like that, but that <laughs> yeah, that's what it is. But a, a crisis of public confidence in science and established institutions. Greater transparency and proactive acknowledgement of the limitations of our knowledge will be part of the solution, they say. And you know, the tip they kind of call out here is to seize opportunities to highlight the evolving nature of science, such as when discussing changing public health guidance. And then, you know, to refrain, uh, reframe concerns about side effects by highlighting examples of our highly effective, like safety monitoring and rare adverse events. I think that's good. I I will say you got to be kind of careful about just saying like, you know, but we're really safe. I don't know that that instills a ton of confidence. I think, um, you do have to have the numbers and, you know, if they're, you know, if it's 99% or if it's the, you know, those types of things I do, I do feel like are helpful. So you just got to really kind of think through what safety means when you're, when you're messaging a lot of this. Another thing they, they kind of underscore is you have to cite your sources, particularly in this day and age, there's so many sources and some of them are unreliable. You want to separate credible sources from unreliable ones. And when you speak with someone 
about their concerns, providing them the follow-up resources of a credible website will be really helpful. We become almost like a, a guider of how to navigate medical information and misinformation online. Cite your sources, huh? That's that's interesting. Um, and yeah, I mean, certainly, certainly very important. I, so next year, develop a toolkit. To some degree, I think for community partners, like a literal toolkit is super helpful. But as we think about our messaging, I think this goes back to creating stuff that resonates with people. So they're talking here about infographics. Uh, I do, and I agree with what they're saying here that that helps you know convey um, you know, very complex topics, right? Um, so the tip here is to collect materials from trusted partners, even create your own and kind of package that up. Right. So this could be a literal toolkit that you deliver around that have things like, you know, myths and FAQs and links and all that kind of stuff. Uh, it also could could reside as a digital resource like a landing page or kind of microsite feel. Another recommendation here is to speak up, turn up the volume on accurate information and you and I and others that we know that are friends of the pod, like Dr. V and others, we're all about this, right? Making sure that our information, the accurate information is out there. Even if you don't create your own content, amplifying other voices by sharing on social media is influential. And they actually call out seven outlets that they recommend doing this with. First of all, a website, any website that you own, but then a newsletter um, they use successfully. They've also used Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn, and YouTube as outlets. So use those places where the misinformation is spreading as a way to amplify credible information. Yeah. I mean, use the algorithms for good. And then finally, find partners, which I mean, is just is such a huge opportunity and should happen anyway, right? I mean, this is really how you build strength, you know, strength in numbers, you know, comes from somewhere. So it says in here that the best partnerships not only distribute the work, but also provide complementary skills and support, uh, which I think that's an interesting one to look at it too. You know, everybody kind of has their own skill set and can really bring some cohesiveness if you pull Uh, the right folks together. The tip here is to formalize your efforts by creating a team and getting organizational leadership on the board. Partner with others uh, who share the passion for what you're doing, but ideally that there's some sort of complementary expertise. You don't want a whole bunch of people that all do the same thing. That's not how you build your team at work. You know, so as you're trying to think about things like fighting misinformation, it would make sense to make sure you've got some, uh, Uh, complementary skills and skill sets on the team. I think those are some good tips for us as healthcare professionals and, you know, in whatever aspect we are in our health systems to, to follow. Let's do this, Reed. Let's take a break. We'll come back and we'll, uh, we'll also touch quickly on an article about health messaging in the disinformation age that was actually written by uh, a person that's more in the health tech space as a recommendation to help us guide how we can start to address this misinformation. We'll do that right after this brief pause. As we continue on this theme of disinformation, we found one last article called Health Messaging in the Disinformation Age that was published on a website called projectsyndicate.org. The World's Opinion page, it's called, it was just recently published. It really is designed to help us navigate how misinformation works in this digital age, or as they're calling it, the disinformation age. Well, goal here is to regain public trust, because as you know, public health has kind of had an eroding of trust over the last few years. So health officials have to start learning from their mistakes 
and stop confusing credibility with infallibility. Let's start off with some stats that kind of set the table here. Well, back in 2021, the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation and the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health found that only 52% of Americans now place a quote-unquote great deal of trust in the CDC. So half. And about a third, only 37%, have much confidence in the National Institute of Health or the FDA. That goes even further, right? Yeah, and state state you know health departments uh, fare maybe a, just a touch better than that, but not much. Um, you know, forty one percent of Americans levy trust in their in their local folks. I mean, overall, positive ratings in the public health system declined from forty three percent to thirty four percent between the years of two thousand and two thousand twenty one. Well, and they, they call in here that this is really, I mean, this, yes, monkeypox, COVID-19, et cetera. But this, I mean, uh, that's just what it is now. You know, it's the ongoing health issues, the wider range, they call it, of ongoing health issues that, you know, we, we've got to um, realize that we need the public's trust back because there'll be something, you know, next. And to that point, it's a, the, they're calling on a broader approach to address this this uh, a need to re-infuse trust in public health. So this is really to the public health sector of our industry here. They say start with a commitment to community engagement. Again, partnerships across other sectors. And here these sectors relate to other things. You know, we talk about the social determinants of health. There are sectors out there that are helping to address those, like housing and education. In addition, uh, public health officials you know, must base their recommendations uh, on incomplete data. Uh, you know, as the data evolves, so will the recommendations. This is where transparency comes into play, where you know, folks have to be real about uh, the recommendations they're making and kind of the state in which they're making them in. And realizing that you don't have all the facts, and that's a natural part of, of health. Right. I think we understand that when we're like dealing with some kind of specific condition, there is incomplete data. But in this particular case, you have to provide the data as a guidance to help improve your health. And also along with that, one of the things that public health officials may have misstepped on is that they appeared a little too authoritative. So you have to kind of ratchet that back. Public health officials have to be transparent about the nuances and the fluid nature of what they're communicating and not just come out and say, this is the way it is or what have you. Just say, this is based on the information we have today. This is the best recommendation at this time. You know, get a little less authoritative. Another cornerstone of uh, sound communication this article calls out is clarity. And I think this is the big thing here that I found to be a challenge. And I know others that listen into the show have noticed this too. Public health officials have to explain how data and recommendations relate to people's everyday lives. And I think they're moving in that direction. They're learning from those lessons. But when you get information that's correct or incorrect, it's that's a moot question if the public doesn't understand what's being communicated. We have to start talking talking to them in a way that actually makes sense to them day to day. Yeah, this is what I like to call the teenager effect. I can tell my teenager all kinds of things and it doesn't land because they don't feel like that's ever going to happen to them. Right. So this idea of clarity and explaining how this impacts people's everyday life is really important. Right. So it's like, yeah, but... This is such an interesting one. Um, 
to really be able to kind of drive home. Uh, next thing on the list they talk about here is that local public health officials uh, should think of their messaging as being part of an inclusive conversation. You know, they should seek out voices, trusted advocates such as faith leaders, uh, shelter managers, food bank directors. You know, if you think about social determinants of health, especially a lot of these folks, you know, have information, point of view, experiences that, again, back to that idea of finding partners and finding complementary skill sets and experiences. Yeah, the whole point here is that we're in a world now where there is a climate of alternative facts and medical misinformation, and that's really challenging. And it's been taxing on public health leaders across the country. We know that. By kind of learning from these past mistakes and developing strategies to clarify their messages, be inclusive, all of those things that we just talked about can really start us down that path of a difficult but necessary process of rebuilding trust in public health. And I think that that's one step that we can all take a lesson for, Reed, around addressing public health. We all have skin in the game here. If you think about what's happening, if you think about those that operate hospitals, you know, what are the big things we're seeing? Burnout, workforce shortages, you know, et cetera. We've got to participate in a way that you know, understanding that this feeds into a lot of that, you know, mm-hmm. if people are not taking the, the proper precautions or the vaccines or whatever it may be, you know, where are they going to end up? Like what's gonna ultimately going to happen? It, it's one of those things where it's like, you know, we've got to spend time thinking about this and building, not even just for us, but building these community, local community, state, federal, you know, partnerships around kind of the broader idea of, of social determinants of health as well. So a lot of expertise out there. And if we can get those people together rowing in the same direction, it, you know, tells a pretty good story and provides a lot of hopefully comfort and security to some extent to the, to the consumer that, you know, these health officials and organizations that are in charge of their health. Yeah. And it, you know, it makes me wonder that if we, as digital leaders in healthcare, Reed, if we have a role in all of this too, we have a community of people that we're all trying out there to, to kind of combat against medical misinformation. There's some unity among our the listeners of this podcast and others in our industry. We'd love to hear from people listening in. Yeah, I'll reach out. I mean, certainly, uh, you know, we'll be posting this episode. You should be able to find a little blurb about it on LinkedIn that either Touchpoint has shared or Chris or I or, or something like that would love kind of your thoughts in the comments there um, around what you're seeing, what you're doing. Uh, I'd love to hear you know about partnerships people have uh, created and you know continues to evolve. So really interesting uh, uh, topic, certainly, which I'm sure we'll come back to more and more. Well, let's take one last pause, Reed, and then we'll come back to close out the show. All right, Chris, as we get ready to wrap up the show, again, touchpoint.health is the website. The TPS report is the weekly newsletter. Uh, Also in there, a couple of links to upcoming industry conferences. So you can mark your calendars for those. Uh, Before we call it a week, however, uh, let's talk about recommendations. What do you have today? Reed, I'm going to recommend a television program that I've been watching on Netflix, The Sandman. It's an American fantasy drama TV series that's based on a series of comic books that were written by Neil Gaiman 
and published under DC Comics when I was a teenager, I guess, in the 80s. It's really about uh, uh, basically the, the king of dreams and sort of his interactions with not only humans, but his other siblings, right? Brothers and sisters. The premise is, is that the Sandman gets captured by some humans. They take away his power, and then he finds his way back, reclaims his power, and finds himself to be stronger than before, and then starts to reflect on himself and his role over humankind. And it's just this really interesting, kind of fun little escape show on Netflix. Eight episodes, really easy to watch. If you're into kind of like Marvel superhero stuff or fantasy stuff, if you're a good comic book fan and you've read The Sandman back in the day, this is a great TV show to watch. So that's my recommendation. I like it. I am going to recommend a writing utensil, a pen. Ooh. Um, I always like a good pen. I kind of switch around quite often because I just, I like trying pens and pads and journals and you know all that kind of stuff. But Pilot, uh, who everybody's familiar with, so this is just a disposable pen. This is nothing fancy. Um, but it is a Pilot Razor Point 2. It's a super, super fine point. So if you like uh, the preciseness and it's more of kind of a felt tip, but a razor point two is what I'm recommending. So I like, yeah, it doesn't bleed through. It's good for like your moleskins and stuff like that. And it's fun to sketch with too, because it's just so, uh, such a precise tip. On it, so you always have a good recommendation on pens. So I'm going to take that into account. Yeah, there you go. There you go. All right. Well, another great episode. Thanks for tuning in uh, for yet another week of Touchpoint. Reach out to us if you've got topics, ideas, uh, maybe somebody we should have on the show, something like that. Let us know what you got going on this fall. Webinars, conferences, all that kind of fun stuff. I'd love to hear more about uh, what you're up to. So reach out to us, LinkedIn, Twitter, so the best way to track us down. Chris Boyer, I'm Reed Smith, and we'll see you next week. This has been a Touchpoint Media production. To learn more about this show and others like it, please visit us online at touchpoint.health.